And we welcome you to this edition of the Plate Meeting Podcast. I am T-Mac alongside Gil. Our guest this week needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. He is a former minor league umpire. He taught at umpire school. He helped uh, put ump tire to places they've never been before. He's your man, my man, everybody's man. Scott Kennedy joins us on the Plate Meeting. Hey, Scott. How are you guys doing? I appreciate you having me on for the uh, follow-up here. Well, let's get started here by finding out, Scott, how you became an umpire. What took you into baseball umpiring? You remember umpiring your first game. What led me to baseball umpiring was I had to get out of church league women's slow pitch softball. They were the craziest people I had ever met. That's where I got my start was umpiring, making some money. I thought church league, no big deal. Oh, my gosh. People, their ejections left and right. I said, I can't do softball. So after after a three or four game stint there, I went to start my umpiring career in Little League Baseball. My dad was the Little League commissioner, brand new league commissioner for the Parks and Recreation for the Little League in Frankfort, Kentucky. He needed umpires. My dad was a high school umpire and had been going to clinics and uh, was doing uh, some small college umpiring at that time. And was was kind of he was the recruiter saying guys i need umpires i'll train you i'll show you how to do it you'll wear the uniform you guys will make uh, 25 bucks a game every night you work you'll work three games so you make 75 bucks we're like okay well you know we'll do it we were in college me and my brother my best friend a couple other buddies we all just kind of did it like in a, a group of six to eight guys and and my dad was the commissioner and when he was there he was uh he was also a city commissioner so he was elected public official in the city of frankfurt and everybody in the city knew him. And my dad is a is a, a great people person, and, and so was my mom. My mom would go down there and help with the concession stand and whatnot. They, we grew up at the ballpark, and my dad, his happy place was to be out at a baseball field. And Little League uh, in Frankfurt is, is a stadium called State Stadium, and it had bleacher seating throughout, but the concourse was a actual – Stadium. It was a concrete stadium that was the old jail in Frankfurt, and it was notorious for having the best Little League All-Star Tournament in the state, and it was called the East Frankfurt Kiwanis Invitational Tournament. So all the All-Star teams for 11 to 12-year-olds would go there. So your goal was to make the All-Stars because that was the best tournament going back at that time. So that's where I got my start was in Little League Baseball, working for my dad. My dad was there every day. Um, every game he was there every single day opened up the gate closed down the gate that was his part-time job because he loved baseball and he took it into consideration in between innings he'd come out and give us little pointers here and there then after the games in between games he'd give us some little pointers and uh, we evolved into that and then that led into going to some clinics with him that got us to uh, and I say got us to me and my, my brother and I my brother was a a former minor league umpire as well. So that got us into some camps and got us in front of some people. And that's how we ventured down to Daytona at different, two different times. He went to, my brother went in 1995. I stayed back. I, th- I thought I was in love with, with some little girl or two or three little girls. So decided to stay home. And then in 1997, I think two years of maturity. And I was like, this is, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So then I went to umpire school in 1997. So that's where I got my start. Scott, uh, normally at this time we ask, you know, the, fo- the, the, the follow-up question, how did you get to umpire for when you decided? Tell our listeners who your brother is and uh, how he decided 
potentially to go to umpire school. So I think that might help us determine how you got there. Yeah, my brother, his name's Jack Kennedy, uh, kind of a nickname for the other president. And uh, he went, he, we both got into, went to some clinics and around Kentucky and, and around Kentucky's a hotbed for the Larry Vanovers, the Sam Holbrooks, the Charlie Relifords, the Greg Gibsons, Paul Nart, Jerry Lane. I mean, the list goes on and on people that are from Kentucky. Um, and we went to a clinic ran by Vic Travis, who was a, a minor league umpire. He was actually on the same crew as Charlie Relliford. So Vic Travis would work, would, would conduct some weekend clinics around the state of Kentucky and they were like 50 bucks. So my dad would say, Hey, I'll give you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll help pay your registration. You know, you guys can, I'll take it off your game fees and you guys can pay me back. And then, I mean, I think, I think we did that for one or two, but I think my dad saw how serious we were about it. And he, he, he kept putting the bill for me and my brother to go. So we did this for 1992, 1993. And then in 1994, we went to a college camp and some people were there that were former minor league umpires. Uh, Jay Kepperling was there. Uh, Robbie Cashin was there. Some local guys like Bob Howard. These were, these were minor league guys. And they said, you guys need to go to umpire school. So we were all for it. And in 1995, we both had saved up money. Our grandparents had given us money. Everybody had given us money to register to go. We were both signed up to go. Uh, and I think the week before Christmas, I think I bailed out and said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to Daytona. I want to stay here. I want to, and I think I want to umpire and just try to do the local thing, the college thing, and this, that, and the other. My brother said, I'm going. So my brother went in 1995, and I think we talked every single day. He would tell me how school was going, what they did. Um, you know, and then he'd, he'd tell me the, the, I, I called it kind of like the little fantasy camp of umpires. He's like, yeah, Sam Holbrook's down here. Charlie Relford's down here. Oh my gosh. I got to meet Harry Wendelstadt. Uh, I got to meet Hunter Wendelstadt, just legends of umpiring. And I'm just, I'm just foaming at the mouth the whole time. And, and towards the end, my brother, uh, you know, when, when I, he invited me to go to banquet and, and at that time I was living on my own. I didn't have the money, uh, the money my mom and dad had saved. For us to go to umpire school, they actually put it towards the rest of my brother's tuition, and 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 you know we just didn't have the money. I mean we're we're blue collar family as it comes, middle class, uh, maybe you know, and, and it, it just wasn't in the funds for any of us to go down there for the banquet. But my brother had a good run, and he graduated. We didn't know this, but he graduated as the number one student. And I remember getting that phone call about eleven o'clock at night. Uh, you know, he called and. Sure enough, he goes, well, I got some hardware. And I'm like, what do you mean? Did you get, get like a Golden Mask Award or something? And, and he's like, no, nah, dummy. I got the number one student. I'm like, get the bleep. I'm like, what? So we're all screaming in the background and doing this, that, and the other. So that was a cool moment for me. And it, and it always made me say, God, I wish I would have gone. I wonder, I wonder what if. What if I had gone? What if I had gone? So anyway, uh, he comes home and does his thing, and, and he gets assigned to the Gulf Coast League, and, and my mom and dad had, had never flown on a plane before, and we're going we're gonna to make a trip and go down and see my brother. And sure enough, we go down there for – I think we were down there for four or five days. We went down on like a Wednesday and flew home on a Sunday, but we would go to the games, and then after the games – uh, I'd hang out with my brother and his crew, and they lived at Siesta Keys down in down in uh, where was that at Sarasota down in Sarasota, and I would get to hang out with all the umpires. All lived in the same 
condo complex. So there's 12 or 14 umpires, and everybody's games are at noon. So everybody's back on the complex, I say on base, like at 4 p.m., 5 p.m. So, you know, the, the, the routine is everybody go out for dinner, let's have a few drinks, and they tell some stories and all this stuff. So after the first day I was hooked, I'm like, I got to go to umpire school. I got to go to umpire school. This is what I want to do. This is cool. However, uh, my mom and dad, you know, they, they threw a wrench in there and they said, well, if you want to go, look, we did our part. We saved our money. We saved our money for you guys to go. You decided not to go. We gave it to your brother. So here's what we're going to do is you're going to put some skin in the game. We don't want you bailing out at the very last minute. So uh, I worked my butt off. I worked three jobs. I, I umpired Little League Baseball. I umpired Babe Ruth Baseball. Worked a full-time job. And then as, a, as, as crazy as it sounds, the Cincinnati Reds used to play at a, at a place called Riverfront Stadium. And I used to go up there on the weekends, which is about an iron 15-minute drive. I knew some. I had some friends that went to school up there. I would stay with them on the weekends, and I would sell beer on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays at Riverfront Stadium and keep all the tip money and drive home and then work my job Monday through Friday. And uh, that's the only time. I didn't work during the weekdays. I just worked on the weekends. And then when the, when the Bengals played, um, you know, I, I sold some beer up there while the Bengals played. And as awful as they are, the, the, the crowds aren't very good like the, the Reds were at that time. So didn't make as much money, but it's always a, a funny story to say, you know, I actually – sold beer at Riverfront to go to umpire school. So it took me it took me a year to do that. Then I got signed up in 1997, and um, Chad Fairchild was ranked number one, and then Danny Cricks was the re- top returning student as number, as, as number two. Darren Williams was ranked number two, and then I was ranked number three in the first-year guys. So Eddie Hickok sat across that table from me and told me, he's like, now, well, you know, it gives you the whole, how do you think you did, and you know, there's there's 195 guys here, and it's tough competition. We're, we're taking we're taking about 15 guys, and you know, could you come back next year? And just just had me hook, line, and sinker. And he goes, well, I'm I'm glad to hear all those answers, but you don't have to worry about it because you're getting ready to go into professional baseball. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just a surreal moment to hear that from a from a, a guy that had worked almost a thousand big league games up and down as a triple a guy he's the guy giving you the news that you're going into professional baseball so it was cool and being an instructor down there was everything in the world to me because i got to learn how to teach they told me and it was just you know they give you they give you a few bullet points and then you know they you got two major league guys i can remember my first year teaching down there was in 1999 i've got charlie relford and sam holbrook at my station doing plate work and they they do the first two guys and they're like all right scott it's all yours so i run the group and they're there observing helping me and doing all stuff and i'm just looking at them like oh my gosh these dudes are these are major league umpires these are my like i'm doing this i'm an instructor for harry wendelstadt holy crap so that was I was living that dream just as well. You know, I was a student of being an instructor. So not only are the students that are trying to get a job in professional baseball, I'm a student as an instructor trying to learn how to be the best instructor for everybody there to try and learn their name, try to learn where they're from, and and remember people even even like you. You know, I can't remember everybody's year that they went, but I remember names of the good people that came through school that were fun to be around and, and made you know, those five weeks enjoyable for me and, and me taking time away from my family, you know, that's a, that's a full-time job in itself. But just to be down there at umpire school, that's the only, that's really, I miss the, I miss the camaraderie in professional baseball, but I don't miss 
the cities where, you know, you don't, the locker rooms aren't as nice as the other, or the travel agency loses your luggage or your equipment bag or whatever. But I, I really miss teaching at umpire school. And that's why I get goosebumps when people, you know, they call and say, Hey, can you come instruct in, in Texas? Can you come down to Florida for a camp and help us instruct? And I, was, I love it. I, I think it's fun. I enjoy doing it. And, um, I, you know, as long as, as long as my legs will let me and my family's in good health, I continue, I'll continue to do it for, uh, several more years down the road. So that's what got me to umpire school. So here's what we learned here, Scott. Next time I, I, I order peanuts and Cracker Jacks from the vendor, I'm supposed to tip that person? <laughs> I mean... Just tell them to keep the change. You don't even have to do any math. Just tell them to keep the change. Give them a 20, and your bill is probably 13 bucks. Just say, keep the change. You know, he'll, he'll appreciate a $7 tip. <laughs> I, it, it's the and he'll keep coming back to your section, too. It's the Northeast. It's it's. There's so many people you got to tip. You got to. It's it, it gets confusing. But I want to stay at umpire school for a second because uh, yeah. this, this is kind of a personal aside for those who who don't know. Scott and I go back to 2002. Uh, instructor yeah. student and uh, and so Scott's an entrepreneur. Has been for a long time. You and Peter Durfee developed these woo bass uh, <laughs> t-shirts to make a little extra money being a poor minor league umpire. How did that come about? And um, and I'm pretty sure only the cool kids bought them. You didn't buy one. You weren't cool. You remember those shirts? Yeah, I was, I, yeah my money my money probably went to Miller Lite before it went to a T-shirt. But I do remember that was a, a thing with us. Sam Holbrook and Andy Roberts were the two fishermen that were always – they were the guys that would go fishing before school, after school. Um, and I was always on the I was always on the happy hour run as to where are we going for happy hour and where's the best place we can get a good cold bucket of – adult beverages and this, that, and the other, and they'd catch up to us later. But every time they would catch a fish, it was kind of like um, ringing the, the dinner bell when it's time to come in. They'd holler, whoop-ass, whoop-ass. And then they'd, they'd both be on the other sides of the pond, and they'd see one They because th- that was a competition. Who caught the most fish? So that's how T-shirts came back up because we'd hear whoop-ass all the time, and that's how anything, if we needed a if we needed another beverage or if we needed service at a, at a restaurant or whatnot, we'd holler, whoop ass. Therefore, on these T-shirts, people, the students started repeating it. So if somebody made a good call, whoop ass. If somebody made it, if somebody nailed a time play, whoop ass. That all became part of umpire school. And we're like, all right, well, let's, let's see. Uh, they, they had a couple T-shirts made up and, and people were wanting, you all, should, you all should make T-shirts. We'll wear them one day. We'll wear them one day. I'm like, no, oh, we can't. Well, I was I was afraid because Harry always wanted us wearing the Umpire School T-shirts for branding, pictures, um, and because he spent a lot of money on us to have a T-shirt to wear every day. So I didn't buy those T-shirts for those to sit in the dressers. So I was kind of scared as to, I don't want to make the man mad. I'd like to come back next year. So anyway, we said, well, we got, we got Harry's blessing to get these T-shirts. And, uh, <laughs> of course, you make sure Harry's got one. But they started selling these to the students, and gosh, that probably went on for two or three years. And people were people at registration the next year would come in and go, "Now I understand, I get the Windlestat T-shirt. I, I I get that. What is the extra cost? Because I, I'd like some Woo Bass T-shirts, and I'd like the Navy for it to. They were like, "Oh my gosh!" So it became it became a hit. And and believe it or not, I have a pre-smire at home of throughout ten years in minor leagues. I have stuff that I've kept and I've thrown away a lot of useless stuff. The only things I've kept are my big league uniforms from spring training, 
a couple of collared shirts with the Wendelstadt logo on there, my pullovers from Wendelstadt, um, and then T-shirts, one one white T-shirt, one navy T-shirt of Wendelstadt, and then I do have a blue bass T-shirt that is in that Priestmeyer. So I wasn't a cool kid at first. I'm like, ah, I don't want to get fired. But, man, that 10 bucks, that sure would go down on a nice metal light. Um, I'm going to keep my 10 bucks. And then after that, it was, uh, no, got to get a T-shirt. I got to. The big league guys started getting them, so I'm like, oh, gosh, I, I got to get on the cool kid train, so I bought me a T-shirt. So, anyway, that's what how the Rubass T-shirt came out. It, there's all kinds of stories, but a lot of stories go to the grave with me. That's one I can share, yeah, though. Yeah. But you guys came back. <laughs> I remember different colors. I mean, it became – Oh, yeah, it was crazy. Yellow. There was yellow. There was red. There was navy. It was – I'm like, you guys are crazy. But and then the other part that I liked was I wasn't I wasn't the one that had the inventory order or do anything with them. All, you know, everybody else was in charge of all that. I had to do I had to inventory and take everything else: t-shirt money, picture money, banquet money. I was like, gosh, I don't need any more things to keep up with at umpire school like a woo bass t-shirt. And uh, it was just, gosh, you guys bought them left and right. We I think we ran out. People had to go get more. And there was a place called I think it was. I forget the name of the place down in Daytona, but that's where we went and got them made up. And these people are like, y'all want what? Y'all want a, y'all want a largemouth bass on a t-shirt for umpire school? We're like, yeah, yeah, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. They're like, okay. You know, we're like, yeah, you know, so it was, and every, every once in a while I'll text with Sam or Gibby will call or something. And every once in a while we'll let out a woo bass. And uh, it's, <laughs> I don't it's, think we'll ever die. No, it'll never. It'll be. It'll always be an umpire school story. That'll, like I said, a lot of stories go to the grave, but that's one that we can share. And Durfee, Durfee was all about. Let's do it. Let's. You know, Durfee, Durfee make coffee nervous, and we used to tell him, "You cannot drink a five-hour energy." That guy would get up, and his motor would go 115 miles an hour. So we started talking about woo bass, and you know, we we take our first break, and Durfee's already got a quote. Now, if we get 100 t-shirts, it's this much. If we get 500 t-shirts, we can get this much. And if we want one color, it's going to cost us this much. And if we get three different colors, screen print on, it's going to cost us this much. I've done the math, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, holy crap, Durfee. So Durfee was, we're like, Durf, go around to all three fields and promote these Woo Bass t-shirts. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I got it right now. I'm going right now. I'm going field three. Here I go. Here I go. So he'd take a fungo and go over to field three. Don't forget to get your Woo Bass t-shirt. Here we go. Here we go. You know, we're like, Durfee, take a breath. Calm down. Somebody check that kid's blood pressure. He was, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a machine. So anyway, that's. That's how it became. That's how the Woo Bass got going at, at the Winnipeg School. So I think we need to bring it back. I'm going to have to text Hunter and go. I'll come down and visit if everybody brings a Woo Bass T-shirt and can wear it down there. If we can sell them again, that'd be I, fun. Scott, I know I told you at, at some point. I've got it. I've got it somewhere. I just have like 500 T-shirts I have to look through. You got to send me a picture. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Can you send me a picture? It's hilarious. We're going to put that on the site so people know. Uh, know what it you is. Got to. Yeah. You got to. I want to talk about Harry for a second because, um, you know, the great part about going to umpire school twice is you got to meet Harry twice. And, and not to oh. meet a lot of guys, but he was always so positive and, and, and so yep. uh, so smart. And you got to be around him for a really long time as an instructor at umpire school. Um, it, that It just has to be a thrill to be able to pick his brain and increase your knowledge of umpiring over the years what a great guy it you say his name and you keep saying his name and every time i keep getting goosebumps because 
And now that I, now that I say that, I'm not going to get choked up, but I get goosebumps thinking about that guy and everything that he did, everything that the umpire school did, everything that the instructors did. Um, I needed them as much as they let me know they needed me there. And with Harry, I can't, it, and it's not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I, I don't, you know, that's not me, but somewhere me and or, uh, bad grammar, Harry and myself connected from day one as not only a student, but as an instructor, when I got there, I just, the, the, the things the big league guys would tell me was work hard, pay attention, repeat the bullet, the teaching bullet points we use, and then spoon feed these, these, these students because they haven't been here. And if their left foot is not in the right place and they are not comprehending to move their left foot up and they're just, they're, they're caught, they're just deer in the headlights, physically move their foot where it needs to go. And then everything will doing that. And they're like, do that. Because when Harry comes on your field on the podium, he's watching students, but he's also watching instructors as in, what am I getting for my money? Do I want to invite them back next year? You know, what from, from that first year. And then of course I was always cracking a joke and trying to be funny and, well, I don't know if I was trying to be funny. Just I just usually didn't think before I said something. And, and a lot of times the big league guys would just crack up. And, I mean, and uh, so, again, I'm not trying to moan horn, but the big league guys were like, Harry loves you, and that's a great thing. And I'm like, I love Harry. And then we just – we had a connection where Harry would come in for the meetings. And, you know, the first thing was when we had our meetings at 7.30 – it wasn't get there at 7.30. It was, it starts at 7.30, and Harry gets there around 7.15. You don't get there after 7.15. You don't get there at 7.20. You don't get there at 7.25 and catch the tail end of a Harry story. You get there at 7.05. You get there at 7.10. You do not get there at 7.15 or later. Harry will be there at 7.15. Sometimes Harry's ride runs a little late, whatever. Harry may get there at 725. You do not come in after Harry does. And you are clean shaven. You got fresh clothes on. You got gel in your hair. You got a cap on. Whatever you're going to do. Uh, if you're if you're going to do that, then you, you take your cap off in the office when Harry's around. And you hold the cap. And Harry knows you're going to wear a cap. That's why your hair's all messed up. But you are clean shaven. Everything's good. But when Harry would come into the office, I always called him the president. You know, El Presidente's here. And, you know, all this stuff. I uh I'd, I'd play the little uh, the, the president's march, and when Harry would come in, you know he had to walk through the whole hotel room. We had adjoining rooms, so there's a parade of instructors all sitting around, and Harry sits at the front of the table of the office, and he'd come in, and I'd be out, and I'd say, "All hell to the chief!" You know, so Harry would love it. Harry would crack up. The instructors would crack up, and you know, a couple times they'd eyeball like you got Nart and. Those guys are standing over like, uh, what's Harry going to think about this? And Harry would be like, eh, I love it, I love it. You know, and Harry would laugh. Um, but one of my jobs gravitated from that first year. I'd say the second year that I was down there, I started leading the field. But then um, after working my butt off because I cared about that school and I cared about that man on, on what he was doing for me, um, I mean, it was a different animal. I was getting – 
I was getting a nice paycheck for the week, but I had my own hotel room. We all had our own hotel rooms. I mean, he treated us like gold and I was very appreciative and never, never fought against knowing that. And one of my things the second year was kind of, they just kind of, the big league guys kind of tabbed me as, as the JV coach. And what I mean, JV, it was all the minor league instructors. You're going to be the JV coach. If we have a problem, if we need, not a problem, if we need to resolve something or we need improvement, the big league guys would come to me. And if something was going on, I'd take care of it with the minor league staff. We'd get it resolved uh, and we'd work on it and we would be better. So the big league guys loved having a point guy. So that was what I became Harry's point guy. If Harry needed something, if there was a situation that we did not need to let Harry know, or if Harry caught wind of overhearing a couple instructors handling a problem, Harry would say, Harry would say out loud in a group full, you know, 15, 20 people, you know, what is this I'm hearing about so-and-so? And I'm like, mm, quick on my feet. Uh, hey, Chief, we're doing this and this, this, and this. So that happened here, and, and now we've got it handled. Okay, all right, appreciate it, Scott. He always called me Scott Man. He's like, all right, I appreciate it, Scott Man. I know if there's ever a problem, I know who to put on it, you know, and he would laugh, and so that was the thing. We do not let Harry know there are situations. I mean, we have we have people that have to be sent home from umpire school for violating rules, and, um, you know, we have, we have disagreements. Uh, maybe in the parking lot over a parking spot and there may be some words exchanged or there may be a couple guys wanting to quit and go home. I was one of those guys. I was one of those buffers. Hey, who wants to go home? All right, let me, I'm gonna go, they're not in school or they're not in class. So let me go to room 348, knock on the door. Hey, can I come in for a minute? Hey, let me, let me talk to you for a little bit. And I would do everything I could to give them the positives of stick with us, stay with us, you know, worst case scenario, I'd, I'd say, hey, Harry, I'm going to bring a guy up here. We need to talk to him. He wants to go home, this, that, and the other. Harry was always, Scott, I need, can you, can you make sure this is handled? Scott, can you do this? Scott, can you do that? I would stop whatever Harry needed me to do. If I was doing something else for a Sam Holbrook or Charlie Relliford, I would say, Charlie, Chief needs me to do this. And that was, I didn't have to go tell them. They knew whatever they gave me to do was going to be finished. So I had their trust. I wanted to earn their respect. Uh, and I wanted, I wanted that duty. And when Harry passed away, I was traveling and I was by myself and I didn't care. I was at a stoplight and I got the news and I had to pull over because, and I get goosebumps thinking about it now, if I can remember it plain as day, that hurt my feelings so bad because of, my travel, what I was doing was zero way I could go to Daytona. And as, and as terrible as it sounds, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's two people's funeral that I, I, there was just, I just physically could not get there because I was not, I just couldn't. And that's, that's my grandmother on my mom's side of the family. I was on the West Coast and Pacific Coast League. And Chris Jones was looking at me for the fall league. And I had to play and got the news. My grandmother passed away. So he's like, well, do you want to work or do you want, you need to go home? Do you need to, I mean, you do what you need to do. He's like, yeah, you know, you don't have to work it. And I'm like, same thing. I mean, it was two, two times. One, my daughter's, my wife's in, you know, she's, I told that story last time when Rich Reeker's looking at me and my wife's 
going into labor for emergency C-section. And the second time the big leagues are looking at me is the day my grandmother passed away on my mom's side. My mom's like, you are not flying from California. She's 88 years old. You saw her before you left. You're not flying cross country. We're not ruining blah, blah, blah. Look, I know you're upset and everything. Look, well, everything's good with us, blah, blah, blah. That one and Harry Wendelstadt. Harry was, if, if people really knew behind the scenes on how much he cared about the school, the students, the city of Ormond, his staff, his family, that dude is, is if, if there's any way that Major League Baseball, if they do not put that guy in the Hall of Fame, somebody needs to have their head examined because for what he did for umpiring with him and the Doug, Doug Harvey's of the world, to put umpiring and training on the map of of training umpires, Harry, Harry, I always say this all the time. Harry told me, he said, Scott, not everybody is going to be a Major League Baseball umpire, but everybody can be a Major League Baseball type of person. So that's the thing, Major League Baseball, first class, best of the best, on and off the field. But Harry used to preach that to us all the time. Guys, I know everybody in Ormond as a staff. I need you to cross your T's, dot your I's. You are on staff because you're the best of the best, and you're here for a reason. I don't need any phone calls, and that's all I need. That's all I need to say. You know, and we're like, yes, you're right, Chief. I remember Harry saying two things. Well, well first of all, he, he when he set the, the time for when, okay, 8 o'clock tomorrow, and then Paul, whoever would stay. Uh, well, you know, it's Harry's where you're on time, you're late. So, you know, yeah. make sure yeah. you're <laughs> – The other thing is Harry's Harry always, like, like a grandfather would, was always telling the students, just remember – Daytona has the highest STD rate in the whole world. And I didn't know nobody knew if that was true or not. Or he was just making it up. How would he know that? But everyone's like, okay, but it's going to be the hotel room. It died. Oh, my gosh. We, we knew that. We, he, he would always say, and that was, that was one. And he, he we would, so then we'd say Sharks Lounge, which, God, I hope they demolished that place. And then there was another one he'd say, I used to be. Uh, I used to be built like a Greek god, and now I'm built like a goddamn Greek. You know, cause yeah. get, back in when Harry retired and all that stuff. But uh, we used to we used to know Harry's speeches, and we go, "Oh, here it comes! Here it comes! STD! Right here we go! Here we go! Daytona, transit capital of the world." And he would he would he would love to do head count. Sometimes we'd have somebody and he'd go, uh, like I was I, I had a I had a guy that was like literally had his luggage in the lobby at one time and that was they said you know we know you know harry loves you when harry comes in sits down and he goes where's scott man and they're like chief he's trying to he's got got somebody that's thinking about going home so we got him on it and he and then harry's like okay yep that that guy will be staying so you know he felt good about it and all that stuff and and i love that dude to death and and hunter is just as good as gold and everybody that's been on staff down there that I've remained in contact and, and the toughest part in the world being affiliated with minor league baseball. And, and when I used to work at up and being affiliated with the contract at Vero, not to be able to drive over to Daytona because I, I would lose my job. You know, it wasn't our contract. I'm not on staff. I'm not on the payroll to go to the Wendelstadt school because of our commitment with minor league baseball at that time. You know, it, I just, it, it hurt, but it was an hour and a half drive and we'd have one car and I, you know, I just, 
I, I don't want to rent a car on my own because I, I would want to stay over there for two or three days, not just go for a day and then drive back. That's not going to happen, you know, but I know a lot of, not a lot has changed over there structurally and I'm dying to get back down there and walk around and visit and see Hunter. I always talk to Hunter every year and, and, you know, several times a year. It's like, gosh, I can't, can't believe you're not here. And I'm like, you're right. I can't either, but we're going to, we're going to change it up, make some things happen. So I'm looking forward to going back, but, the Wendelstadt school, not that it saved my life, but I needed them and they needed me and I loved it and wouldn't trade that for anything in the world with the instructors that we had down there of, of who I've become close friends with, still remain tight with all those guys, Billy Hayes, Danny Cricks, um, uh, Brian Hale, Steve Cox is going to, he's going to, to an FBI academy training, all that stuff. And I said, that's all through baseball. And because of, uh, oh gosh, I'm throwing the Shane Matheny down there too. So there's a ton of people down there that, I, that I'm 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 not saying their names. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not forgetting them. It's just you can the list goes on and on of good people. It's especially the guys that are big league umpires now. Dan Bellino, um, freaking uh, Trip Gibson, and Corey Blazer, and young, John Tunpain. Those young kids that come through, I would tell them when they were at umpire school. Say Al Porter, he wasn't on staff, but uh, I can remember telling them like, "Hey, do it this way." Because when you're on my crew here in the next couple of years, or you pass me up and you get to the big leagues, I want you to remember me. I want you. I want you to remember me. So Tom Payne, he'll text me, and I saw Bellino and them in an airport, and those guys like, you know, hugs like, man, we miss you. You know, we wish you were here. And I was like, I wish I was too. So does Chase Bank. But anyway, you know, they're learning more about what I'm doing now, and that doesn't change our that doesn't change my relationship with them. Uh, which I'm very thankful for that. So and I remember Tump couldn't get his hat, hat mask right, so he went to the store <laughs> and he bought uh, uh, I forget was the New Era what one of the one of the masks one of the, uh, the the same type of mask that CB Buckner would wear because he couldn't. I mean, he had you know he has a nice nice head of hair. I'd try to show it off too yeah. if I were. But do you remember that he oh, couldn't yeah. get, couldn't get his hat mask down, so he, he went and was dropped a hundred bucks on a on a on a mask that he didn't have to wear a hat on. What a, what a concept. And I, I, I'm telling you, and I said, I used to remember looking at, at people like Campaign. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this dude has the look from what, you know, what I know of three or four years in the minor leagues of what, what the mold is or what, you know, what the, what the build is at athleticism-wise. And I'm like, this guy's not going to get a job if he can't do hat and mask. And I'm like, now the guy's saving people from Pittsburgh trying to commit suicide and working, you know, working playoffs and crap. So I'm like, yeah, and I text him. I'm like, I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible for getting you turned around. I'm the reason you're in the big leagues. And we just – we tease back and forth. But it's it's awesome to to to, to still remain in contact with those guys. And, and how many of those guys are on your all's website looking at stuff? And then how many of those guys – I'll come off the field and I'll have a TV game, and those guys are like, hey, man, so you worked the play. You look good back there, dude. Keep it, it a great game. We're watching it in the locker room. And I'm like, you guys are in Philadelphia, and you're watching me at LSU? Do you guys – what's going on? Were you all in a rain delay, or did y'all lose a bet? Is that the, you know. <laughs> Scott, we got to take a quick break on this edition of the Plate Meeting. When we come back, we're going to talk with one of the great people, persons, about dealing with people. Seems like a good idea. That's when we return to the Plate Meeting Podcast, powered by Close Call Sports. Did you know that 76% of sports officials who quit officiating cite poor sportsmanship as the reason they left the job? It's no wonder then that 55% of fans admit to heckling officials. 
Any number higher than zero in both of these categories is too high, and we need to do something about it. Here at OSIP, we offer a number of programs to promote good sportsmanship, including Officials Anonymous, a toll-free confidential hotline for officials to call just to get things off their chest. If you're an official who's taken abuse, or if you suffer from anxiety, anger, or depression as a result of officiating, and you just need to talk to someone, call Officials Anonymous at 888-930-OSIP. That's 888-930-6747. The OSIP Foundation, renewing the standard of sportsmanship. Always great to hear from the folks at the OSIP Foundation. Strongly recommend uh, talking to Jack Furlong and his gang if you're experiencing any anxiety in this crazy world of officiating amateur athletics. We're a guest on this edition of the Plate Meeting, Scott Kennedy. And he's a pretty big-time NCAA umpire, folks. Last year, a super regional appearance for Scott and uh, in the ACC and the SEC. So since we have one of the great people, persons, uh, on the line with us this week, I want to talk about dealing with individual people. So one of the things that makes umpiring a lot of fun for me personally is an ability to interact with catchers, bat boys, coaches, players, team personnel, the way you treat people, the way you get uh, positivity in return. Now, I'm not on the field talk, flagging down the right fielder and having a running conversation about his, uh, about his school work, but you know, just an ability to talk. Hey, how you doing? Where were you last? Where are you going this weekend? Stuff like that. Now, if there's a person that knows how to talk to people, it's, it's Scott. I want you to take me through, um, you know, one of the ways you keep coaches and managers off is dealing with the catchers, right? The catcher has your back. The manager, head coach is going to leave you alone. If the catcher doesn't have your back, you're going to have a lot of issues. So, Scott, your first time meeting a catcher. It's your first time you've seen this guy. You're at the University of Kentucky. How do you handle him? Uh, that's a great question. And This is one of the things we try and teach at the clinics I go to is kind of game management. You know, everybody that, that makes it to the NCAA NCAA level. I mean, everybody can call balls and strikes out and say, it's just how good are you in your judgment? But the other thing that people forget to take into effect is game management. One of the things uh, that I do, my, my routine and what's worked for me in the past and what I recommend to people is when I get that catcher out there, you know, I might, I might give him a handshake or a fist bump because that's what they're taught to do. So I'm like, you know what, we're not going to say, oh, I'm not going to shake your hand. I'm not going to do this. I'll do one or the other, but I'll do it with both catchers. I don't, I don't not shake one catcher's hand and then tell the other catcher, I don't like you because I had to eject your coach five years ago or something crazy like that. What I do is, hey, man, uh, I tell him, hey, hey, my man, what's your name? Tells me his name. Okay, perfect. Where are you from? He'll tell me. If I know the city or know something about the city, I don't, if it, especially, and not, but not if it's a minor league city. I don't say, oh, you're from Zebulon. Oh, yeah, hey, I was an ex-minor league umpire that worked in the, worked in the Southern League and came through there when they were the Carolina Mudcats. I don't, I don't tell them my resume. I'll say, they'll say, I'm from Zebulon, North Carolina. You ever heard from it? And I said, yeah, it's about 30 minutes from Raleigh. And they'll turn around and they're like, yeah, that's what, you know, I, I, I'll do something like that. I'll ask them what year are they? And then I'll ask them, or, and then I'll say, hey, I said, are you, I said, are you the everyday guy or do you guys split it up or what's the deal? And they're like, oh, right now, right now I'm catching most of them. I'll catch two out of three games. You know, I'll catch Friday and Saturday and then usually I get Sunday, Sunday off. I might DH. So I'm trying to gauge with him as well as to how good is this guy. I can remember doing this in, in the minor leagues and, and 
I did this with a guy, and, and he said, well, this is the first game I've ever caught, and this was in the South Atlantic League, and it was in Charleston, West Virginia. The guy was drafted as an outfielder. Well, now they are converting him into a catcher because of his arm. And I can remember a broken left hand and indicator five innings later, um, I, what I thought about that guy as a catcher. But with these college kids, I'll ask them, hey, what, you know, after what year they're in school, I'll say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's your major? Oh, I'm going into sport administration. And then sometimes I'll, if I know the kid is a big time prospect, I'll say, hey, where are you going to get your degree in after you get drafted? Something like that where, you know, he, he's like, oh, you know, okay, well, this guy knows I'm a legit player or something. So that's how I started off. And then I'll ask him when I get behind him to take some warm-up pitches, and I'll say, this, this, hey, I, say, I know these guys are good. Does he throw anything that's unusual? And he's like, yeah, he's trying to work on a, he's trying to work on a, on a knuckleball source. He goes, here, you want to see one? I was like, yeah, just let me see one so I can – I don't want to be, you know, not, not not say that I get caught off guard, but I would like to know that what's in his repertoire that's not a fastball, slider, changeup, uh, two-seam or whatever. I don't need you to tell me, okay, here comes a fastball on the corner. Here comes a here comes a slider. I don't need all that. So that's how I started off talking to those guys. What would you say? I said, here comes a splitty. Good luck to you. Always yeah, good luck to you. Those uh, just out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Whoa. I was like, yeah, let me know when those are coming. So um, that, that's how I started off with the catchers. But I try and build that. And I tell them, hey, hey, let me, you know, hey, I'm easy to work behind. Or I, I said, I'm easy to work with. I don't say work behind. I take that back. Hey, I'm easy to work with. If, if you want to know where a pitch is, as long as it's not 250 in a row, if there's a marginal one, hey, Scott, do you have that out? Or, hey, where'd you have that? I'll tell you. It's outside. Sometimes I said, well, I said, you know what? And I don't get them all right. And I said, I try to stay consistent. Unfortunately, I'm going to miss a few calls. However, I'll tell you, you know, if I think it's, you know, if I think it's, if I think maybe I missed one, I won't say, hey, sorry, Mike, you can tell that you can tell your head coach I missed it. But if, if I think I missed one, he goes, Scott, where'd you have that? And I go, I thought I'll tell him where I'll tell him why I thought I called it a ball. But I will tell him in a, in a roundabout way, I will say, Hey, Mike, I've been calling that one though, hadn't I? Yeah, you've been calling that pretty much all night. Okay, I'll look at it longer. Maybe I called it too quick. And they're like, that's fair. And I, and as long, and I know what they're saying when they go back to the dugout by the dugout's reaction. Now, this is my first rodeo in the ACC and SEC. And everybody that's listening to this podcast that thinks that if you went to the minor leagues and you were invited to spring training and you come right out of the minor leagues and you're working LSU in Florida, that's one, that's not going to happen. Number two, LSU and Florida don't care that you were an ex-minor league guy and that you went to spring training. They don't care. Number three, I don't have to promote my resume because, unfortunately, there's three forms of communication, telegraph, telephone, and telling umpire. There's somebody, unfortunately, on that crew that is telling the third base coach Hey, that guy just got out of AAA. That guy, that guy was invited to spring training. So that goes over to the dugout. And then while you, you are going to be tested, my first four or five years, you don't see all the same teams all the time like you do in the minor leagues. You're not working, the, um, you know, you're not working 142 games and with the same people through the minor league process. You see Florida, you see Vanderbilt, you see Arkansas, you see Miami, you see Florida State, Clemson, Virginia. You see those teams, but you only see them once or twice a year. 
So you have to have them four or five years in a row, and then they have to see you on TV doing other big-time teams or big-time games and tournaments, postseason tournaments, before your street cred goes up. And then how you handle them when you have an interaction with them, how do you handle them? So that's where I tell the catchers, hey, as long as you're truthful, you know, you go over to the dugout, I'm going to work with you. But if you if you tell them wrong, I will go over to the dugout and tell them, I told him it was outside. If he's telling you it's hitting the plate, I told him it's outside. And when they go back and look at the track man, they're like, yep, it's outside. And that's that's happened before where a catcher's gone there and me and the team had to get into it a little bit, which was fine. And then the next day, that's the first head coach out to the plate meeting and says, I come out early to apologize. We went back and looked at track man. Our catcher is telling us you're telling him you're missing that pitch. And I'm like, <laughs> look, I've done it too long where I've got a routine. And, and that was the thing. He was, I'm, I just want to apologize. And he's like, and that guy's not catching today. Um, we, we told them, we tell them to tell us the truth. And guys got penalized. So that's what, that's how I do it. That's how I work with the catcher starting off. And sometimes they get pissed. Sometimes they get mad. And sometimes, you know, I, I avoid it. I just, I just be quiet. I let them vent a little bit unless it gets personal. It doesn't. They're like, yeah, pitch is right there. Okay. Well, then stick it like it's right there. You keep flailing your glove. If they're doing, I say, quit moving your glove and pulling it back in. You're telling me it's a ball. And then they, then they're like, mutter in the breath. Okay, that's fine. Scott, when Sorry. I got when I got hired to the Northern League in 02 out of uh, out of Harry's, I met a man mm-hmm. by the name of Brooke Fisher. And the one thing that he mm-hmm. taught me than anything else was proper pant length, because you know, for you know, you're you're coming out of umpire school. It's you know, if nobody tells you, you don't know exactly where your pants should be, and that you always. <laughs> The first name of everybody you ever deal with, whether it be the Absolutely. pitcher, the manager, the first base coach. But he said, most importantly, you know the first name of the clubhouse attended, every waitress, every bartender. When you go back, you interact with them, you make them feel important. He said that that will carry you as far as as far as you want to go. So I, I always have been true to that in that every hotel, every clubhouse attended. And I and when I see people umpire, I see them handle bat boys so poorly. Need three. Yep. Okay, who's going to respond yeah. to that? You know, first yeah. thing I do after I get after I after the huddle breaks, after the plate meeting breaks, sounds weird saying the plate meeting on the plate meeting podcast is, hey, hmm. uh, whoever the head coach is, hey, who's bringing me the baseballs today? Oh, uh, I'm not sure yet. I'll send them out to introduce himself. But that's the interaction I want to have. I want to. Hey, Tony, I need three. You know. Billy, when you get a chance, can I can I get four baseballs? Yeah, you know, and that now coaches see that they see, oh my god, he's treating him well. Yeah, the clubhouse attendant at, at some of the colleges that we have, I know you have a lot of them where you work, Scott, mm-hmm. and minor leagues. You treat them well. They tell management. They might tell the assistant athletic director, the head coach, boy, you know this this McCaffrey guy. He's a horseshit umpire, but he tips really well. He gave me ten bucks per a day on the uh, on this. And those are people always want, how do I get better? How do I move up? And I say, besides going to camps and doing all that stuff and and playing the game, you also have to treat people appropriately. If you don't have the resume and you treat people poorly, you've given them an excuse to not use you. And it's so easy to find out um, whether you're treating people well. So, Tim, I I definitely agree with you on that. And it's a philosophy I use. 
every game was everybody's on first name basis, head coaches, pitching coaches, third base coaches, volunteers, ball boys, clubhouse attendants, everybody there has a purpose and everybody there has a job. And if, and if they weren't worthy of having that job, they wouldn't be on the field. But I may need the ball boy to go get something for me. Like uh, maybe, maybe my indicator, the wheel broke or something. I can get that ball boy. Hey, run Mike, come here. Hey, after this, after this batter run, I'll, I'll handle the baseball, but run to the locker room and, and get another indicator out of my locker or Mike. Hey Mike, I need three baseballs, please. I always end with please. When they bring them to me, I always say thank you. Now, the, now when you're at different facilities and they change out ball girls and they different, you know, every two or three innings, you know, you get two brand new ball girls. I try to remember something about their names where I try and remember what their name is, Olivia or Michelle or whoever, because I know it's only two innings. So I'll try and say, I'll try and say Olivia. And if I can't remember their name, they're always staring at us because they don't want to mess up. And I'll try and muffle something. I'm like, I'm like, hey, can I get three baseballs? And they're like, yeah, yeah. they're shaking their head because they're so nervous and they're so scared. I'm like, I can't remember their name. And they'll bring it back out. And I'll go, hey, I pre- please tell me one more time your name. Oh, it's Olivia. Okay, thank you, Olivia. I appreciate it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, he's such a nicest. He's the nicest umpire we've ever seen, blah, blah, blah. You know, but the ball boys the same way. And sometimes the ball boys are the guys that are running the baseballs are actually, it might be an operations guy or it might be uh, a team manager that wants to get into baseball. So I'm like, I'm going to see this guy. Maybe, maybe it's not at Auburn. Maybe he's at Florida state. Maybe, maybe he's up at Boston college or Notre Dame, you know, but I want them to remember, not that they're going to remember my name, but I, I do it the same way you do, Tim is, is baseball is, is a professional, have a professional work ethic in treating everybody the same by referring them, please. Thank you. Um, and, and uh, objections are a different story. Hey, that's enough. Please, please quiet down. You know, no, you know, we don't do that. Or, Hey, you're ejected from the game. Thank you. See you later. No, we don't do that. But the people that we deal with and, and getting baseballs and getting stuff for us, even cups of water, the trainers. Hey, what's your name? My name's Pat. Okay. Hey, Pat, appreciate you bringing us out water. Thank you very much. Yeah. I want to make sure you guys are hydrated. Hey, and then, you know, like how often do you all want water? I'm like, I'll drink it as often as you bring it out. And then, finish my cup, give him the cup back or give her the cup back and say, thank you, because they don't have to do it. You know, it's a courtesy. So anything I can get an edge in to try and kill people with kindness, I want them to appreciate it and know that I appreciate what they're doing for us because they may not get the other thank yous on the other end, the back end of where they're coming from. So in making this a, a great uh, tool for amateur umpires, especially college umpires to listen to. I want to bring up a couple of things that the NCAA uses that I think are really fantastic. And that's the official warning. You know, I think there's no better tool for an umpire to use in college baseball than the official warning. It is night and day. You can have a dugout chirping that. Do you issue that official ball strike warning? And it's like church in there all of a sudden. Um, You get out. uh, uh, There's an umpire. He calls it right in the ticket. And it's a great mechanic. (laughs) I know a lot of times you don't miss enough pitches to get anybody mad at you, but is this something? Is is the warning system that the NCA allows umpires to use something that you teach or have used yourself in the last few years? Oh, absolutely, and I think it's a. I think it's a just like everybody was going to fight replay, and I'm like, guys, we have eliminated ejections, or not eliminated, 
we have cut down ejections because of replay. Um, I can't, I, but I, I don't know the numbers, but I know arguments are way down because of replay. This is, uh, you know, this is another another tool with the warning, as in this is the verbiage you have to do to move on. So with everything televised or streamed or mom and dad sitting up in the stands and what happens as soon as they hear, as soon as they see some hollering, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people get out that cell phone because they think fireworks are getting ready to happen. So it's like if you physically have heard enough and, and you've told them, hey, guys, knock it off. That's enough. We've, I've heard enough. That's enough. Okay, they keep on, keep on, keep on. They cross the line. Now you put your hand up and, and everybody can see this is your official warning. If you continue to argue, you will be ejected from the game. And the only thing I don't like and, and the only thing I'm not a big fan of is the guy that gets that one last shot of, yeah, that's right, write it down. Because we pull out our lineup cards, we're writing it down because we gave them the official warning in the top of the third inning, and the guy's like, yeah, write it down. I'm like, that's – I bite my lip because I want to throw them out because it doesn't give you – one, this is not your free ace of spades to trump and win the hand. I, I don't like it. However, I know there will be more problems. It doesn't give them a leeway. It's just the tone. If it's a different, it just, it's, it's, it's delicate for me personally. However, they give me that last shot, and I'm like, and then I will tell them, I say, and I will finish. When they say that, I go, anything else, and you're done. I'm, I'm just, I'm, but they're like, yeah, okay. And, and like you said, it's church in the dugout. Well, they can't help. So a lot them. of times what will happen. Oh, they can't. And they think that they have to, you know, they think they have to argue, 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 argue until they get that warning. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this real simple. As soon as you start arguing in the first inning, I'm going to address it. And when you say something in the second inning, it's like, we just got out here 30 minutes ago. That's your warning. They're like, it's the second inning. And I'll say, exactly. You're done. That's it. Nothing else. It's the second inning. Nothing else. You have exhausted all your resources in trying to communicate with me. And I can, I can tolerate a ton. So, and, you know, and, and then it gets to the point where, where we are teaching this because that's what they want. And sometimes if I have a rapport with a team, you know, do I give the official stop sign with my hand up? Yes, but that's after I've looked at them and I've taken my lineup card and kind of wiped it across my throat as in, that's it. That's what I'll say. That's it. That's it. And then I'll put my hand up. So I'll take that lineup card, slash it across my throat a couple times, and, and I'll look at them and go, that's it. I've heard enough. And then I put up the stop sign. And some people crack up at that. They go, it's hilarious because you're the only one that does it. And then the other bad problem is some people will say, you're the only person that can get away with doing that. And I'm like, I don't get away with anything. Trust me. If I do something that's not, that they're like, oh, we don't want, because the problem is there's too many people that, that will watch and they'll see me do something on TV. And they're like, oh my gosh, I like that. I'm going to do that. So I have to be mindful of what I'm doing because I don't need the phone call from the NCAA or the SEC going, Hey, Hey, the, the, the throat, the throat thing with your line of card. Don't do that. People are starting to do that now. I'm like, okay, sorry. 
Uh, I didn't know, but I get it. I understand. I get it. I got a, I got a huge target on my back. So we teach it that way, and I think it's a humongous, enormous, great tool for umpires to use to go. This this now dictates a coach can't say, I, I didn't say anything. You didn't. You you never gave me a warning. You didn't give me a warning. I need like they think they have to get a warning first. So you can say you blanking suck. Okay, you're ejected. Well, wait a minute. You didn't give me a warning. I don't have to. So now, you know, not that that's a warning anyway, but that 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 stop sign is a huge tool for umpires to use. And, and I think people have to understand, Scott, that they're going to say, ooh, he's writing, or okay, go ahead and write. Yeah. And, that's, and you're 100% yeah. right. You just have to let that go. If you get 16 yeah, you know, after maybe the third one, now may you know, and you can kind of look at the yeah. head coach, not coaching third, and he'll be like, "I got it," you know. And yeah, yeah. Not like the dugout is eight miles long. They know what's going on on the other side of the dugout. Now they'll pretend they don't know, but they know, and and it's certainly it's where if you have an assistant coach, first base coach who's an ally, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. who you've got to know. That's where hey, you're you're about to lose one of your relievers there. You know, right. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. They can do a whole lot of damage control and, and you can hear what end of the dugout it is. Or if you got two two wing guys at third and first that can that can eyeball, they're eyeballing out of the corner of their eye, and then they'll they'll mosey down and say, Hey, forty two, that's the one you need to forty two, that's the one you need to lock in on on a fly ball and, and let him know something. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah. that's happened before. Hey, I'll I'll ask them, Hey, forty two, bring me a couple baseballs. They're like, Me? Yeah, you. Oh, okay. So they come out, here, here you go, and I go, hey, look, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but there's a guy over in the dugout that looks just like you wearing the number 42. I don't know if you all have duplicate numbers in your dugout, but I'm telling you right now, if I see somebody that looks like you and has a number like you that keeps popping off, I'm getting ready to remove you from the dugout. And they're like, I said, so go back there and tell them, okay? And they're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. 42 doesn't say a word the rest of the night. So that's, that's a little trick you can use up your sleeve to eliminate the, uh, the zit on the lip problem. You know, you I always get that zit on the lip before, before school pictures and stress them out on how you're going to look. I think that's a you one that works for you. I don't know if that's going to work for me, but that might work for <laughs> I want to talk about dealing with difficult people. You've been in the customer service industry You've, uh, you've dealt with angry customers and you've calmed down. Well, we all know on a baseball field, they're not playing because they just want to compete. They're playing because they want to win. And I want to bring up a catcher that is hard to deal with. We all know that 90% of the catchers are great, but every once in a while we get that catcher, that ball's missing down. He's going, no, it's a strike. He's tipping his glove. He's shaking his head. Mm-hmm. Can you give our listening audience some help on dealing with that catcher who's just a pain in the neck? Yeah, it's 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 tough. And one, as 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 bad as it sounds, they're 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 few and far between on the guy that really wants to advance because they're they're taught to try and get along because they've been taught if you don't get along with the umpire, then your strike zone's going to be affected, and you don't want to make enemies with the umpires or whatever. So I know it's few and far between, but there's there's a couple things in that scenario that I think about, and one is it's a TV game. So be careful what you say. Don't say too much. 
try to kill him with kindness. Hey, man, is this guy is 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 the pitcher off a little bit because you're having to go reach to go get that ball? Is he always there? Is this an off night for him? So I'll try and put the blame on the pitcher, not the catcher's movements. But I'll also in my head I'm going I have nine more times that I have to deal with this guy. Okay, we, we've knocked out three innings. I have six more innings of him butchering pitches. I've got three more innings, but I'm trying to work with him through this whole thing where he's like, Scott, that pitch is there. I'm like, it's not there. I'm telling you, it's not there. One, because you're going down to get it. You have to catch it, and then you're bringing it up. Just stick it. Just stick it out in front of you. If you let it come to you or if you're moving, setting up late, and you have to go across your body to go get it, there's no way I'm calling that a strike. And if you're hitting, I'm not calling it on strike on you. So sometimes that's what I'll do on the borderline pitches, and they go, Scott, that's right there at the bottom of the knees. Okay. You know, I've, I've been calling it there. I thought that one was a little down, and, I, you know, I, I have it down. Ah, oh, that pitch is right there. Okay, well, then, then strengthen your arm catch it there and stick it for me. When you pull your glove back up, you're telling me it's a ball. But if you're telling me it's there, hey, perfect. I can I can change my zone and when you come to bat, I'll start calling that pitch. Is that what you, you know, do you want me to do that? No, I just I, I think it's close though. I think it's close. And I'll tell they're all close. They're all close unless they're in the dirt or over our head. You guys are going 0 and 2 and we're setting up in the other batter's box on the chalk. And you guys are sticking that pitch and then slowly dropping to your knee and floating it back to the pitcher. Come on, man. If you go look at track, man, that thing's going to hit hit that batter in the other box in the knee if we were calling that a strike. So it's, it's, I try and kill with kindness. I try and, you know, I try and do some things. Of, I'll try and say, hey, man, uh, can you scoot up just to – I'm not telling you how to catch can you scoot up a half inch for me so I can get, so I can get a better look. I don't feel like I'm getting a good look. I'll blame the pitcher. Then I'll blame me, but I'm trying to get him to do something different. And I'm trying to change up his cadence because his cadence is going to be a pain in my butt for nine innings. It takes me two or three innings before we disagree. So now I can't, when I'm at that stage, I'm going, I've got six more innings. Okay, how can I change this up on him where I can deal with him and kill him with kindness? Those are the things. I want to talk just in continuing continuing this. One of the things that, you know, is, is important is that you'll notice that, you know, our listeners would notice that, your situations generally develop out of balls and strikes and catchers that are struggling. So if you can get them to do mind manipulation, however you want them to be and, and catch, you can help yourself. And, and it's very important to have them on your side. I can tell you, catchers who aren't on your side, even if you're, if you're 100%, they're going to sell you out in that dugout. And they're going to sell you out mm-hmm. to everybody on their offense, the pitching staff, the coaching staff. And you're going to get a lot of – you're going to get bad reports, bad reviews even if you're calling a great game. So you have to do your right. best to get along with a catcher. It just it has to happen. If you can't get along with people, you can't apply a college baseball, period. End of discussion. But I want the, the yeah. technique, Scott, you know, you may have noticed it last year. I've noticed it up here in the Northeast. Of these catchers catching the down pitch that's about a ball down on the knees and scooping it up like a foot. You know, they go out and get it and bring it up. But they also are doing that 
on pitches that are like three balls up on the knees. You know, balls that you know are strikes. So they're trying to normalize you. Uh, who, what coach is teaching this? Because this technique of catching is everywhere. I, early in this, I called a pitch shin high because I was normalized. He did the same thing. And I, and I kind of processed it. I'm like, wait, did I just call a pitch shin high? Have you – obviously, you're getting – if it's happening in the big leagues, it's happened with SEC catchers. How hard is it to separate pitches now at the bottom of the zone? Well, one of the things on the bottom of the zone is looking at a lot of video after a game. So if I work the plate for just Team A and Team B and whichever conference I'm working in, I will go back and watch that game the next day and figure out what does it look like on TV um, because I know my tendencies after a game, I, I know walking off the field if I had a great game, a good game, or one of those games where I was just glad it was over. There are pitches that I will go and look at in between innings or that I'll write down in between innings on my lineup cards. There will be batters that I'll remember their last names. I'll remember there's a pitch, and I may not remember what the count was, but I may go top of the fourth, um, top of the fourth, two out, Fontenot, A-B. So I'll go LSU game, look at Fontenot. I'll, go, I'll, I'll fast forward to top of the fourth, and then when Fontenot comes to bat, I'll know there's a pitch involving him that I either missed and called it a strike that was a ball, or there's a pitch that I missed and called it a ball, and then the next pitch, you know, obviously the kid hits a double or a home run. You know, did I miss strike three and cause a war in the dugout, and sometimes I'll look at it and go, I didn't miss it. It's up, or, you know, they do the little K-zone or do whatever they do, and it's like, yeah, the pitch is down. You know, nobody, nobody, you know, a lot of times I'll look at pitches nobody said a word on. The catcher didn't ask me. The dugout didn't blow up. The hitter didn't say anything. It's just I know in my mind there are some pitches that I think are borderline that I will bite my lip and go write it down. So as soon as I get a chance, again, like if I'm in the fourth inning, Let's say I get a fly ball, and now the catcher's over there taking off his shin guards, and he's going to come back, but he's still taking off his shin guard. I may, I may pull out my lineup card real quick and go, like, top of the fourth, 14 LSU, whatever. So that way I remember to go back and look at that sequence, and I don't have to do it in between innings. I can get my drink of water. I can get my baseballs from Mike, and I can do what I need to do. So working with those catchers, they also are taught now to get drafted, you have to have strong forearms, and they want you sticking pitches for out front. Don't catch it into your chest. Catch it out front and stick them. The reason why I say that is because the catchers that I've been working with, by the time they're seniors, they talk a whole lot more their junior and senior year than they do their freshman year. So they give me tricks of the trade, and I'll say, hey, hey, man, I know you're a – I know, I know a, hey, if, if there's a chance, like a, a junior – and I'll just ask them, just, they're like, Scott, where are you from? I was like, I'm from Louisville. Oh, okay, cool. Our, our, uh, our third base coach said uh, he played in the minor leagues when you were umpiring. I'm like, yeah, he's a good dude, this, that, and the other. Um, so sometimes I'll ask them, I'll go, hey, I was like, hey, I, 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 know, I know you're a junior. I know, I know you're draft eligible. If, if, you get, if you get picked up, are you going to go, or do you want to finish and stay in school and get your degree right away? And sometimes they'll go, man, I'm not going to get drafted. Or sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll tell me, you know, yeah, I'm not strong enough, and they, you know, I don't think I'm gonna get picked. Or sometimes they'll go, well, if I don't stick pitches better, and then they'll tell me they go, yeah, they, they, I think uh, what what we're working on is sticking pitches out in front of us. That's what scouts are looking for, and 
you know, I'm not used to doing that and I don't catch enough. And so I listen, I listen a lot to what, what are their tens or trends? What are their tendencies? And if a guy's just butchering it, Tim, unfortunately, if he goes in the dugout and sells me out and I don't have a good enough report that coach, cause I'll go and tell the coach, I'm like, it's down. And they're like, it's not down. It's right there. Okay. Well, if we have to do paperwork later on, just sometimes just I give up. I'm like, I'm trying to help you. You're not wanting to work with me. I'm trying to kill you with kindness. I'm trying to use all my best lines. You're still wanting to fight with me. Fine. I'm not putting up with it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and battle. I'll just, we'll just get the, the, the backup guy to come in here. That'll won't say a word and just stick the, you know, they'll catch the pitch and throw it back to the pitcher. Cause they're afraid I'm on, I'm on an ejection spree and just going to run, going to throw out everybody, everybody that I can. So well, that's not going to happen. So sometimes you just gotta, you gotta, grab the bull by the horns and go, you know what, I'm getting ready to do some paperwork because I ain't listening to this. So, and I'm, and the coaches know that. They're like, if you, like, their, their thing is, they go, he's a good, you know, they all do scouting reports on umpires. Um, and, and this kid, this kid that played for Mississippi State, he was talking about, it's uh, McNamee. He goes, yeah, he said, everybody, he said, we got our, we got a report on you. He's like, you're a good dude to talk to. You're easy to talk to. And the last thing was, just don't piss him off. I'm like, it takes too much to make me mad. I don't want the, I don't want to write an ejection report. I don't want to throw anybody out if I don't have to. But I have given you two or three warnings of all the protocol to keep you in the game unless you just flat out call me a nasty name. That's not going to keep you around at all. And I do everything I can just to bite my lip keep my composure because everybody's watching your body demeanor. How do you handle it after an ejection? So sometimes you can work with them as long as you can work with them, but sometimes they just don't want to listen. So sometimes it's, it's lessons learned. So hopefully, you know, they get it the next time, but anyway, that's, you know, sometimes we're glad to see guys move on and go, thank God he's out of here. You know, gosh, yeah. what a nightmare. It's fun to go to that city. It's a good team, but that catcher is just difficult to work behind. I always wonder what they say. I don't really wonder, but you know, when you, the next week when you're at, you know, South Carolina, and they complain, boy, you wouldn't believe how bad the umpires were last weekend. And then you look at it, it's series <laughs> guys and, uh, and a good, you know, young guy. And you're just like, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure they were terrible. <laughs> you know, you right. don't say that right. Right. But you, it, to yourself. You're going, my goodness, what a bunch of, what a, you know, they're just never happy. Doug Harvey himself could call balls and strikes, but you, you hit on something there that is so right. important. Video review. Um, you know, we mentioned yep. the way you talk to people. This is something that I believe in. And this is back when we didn't have great video, but it gives you a great good idea of of just watch your games. They give you these great resources yeah. at these schools. You don't have to watch the whole game. You were there, but any pitches that you question, jot them down on your lineup card and then go Absolutely. watch them later. Now, if you're missing 60 pitches and you're in between every batter, jotting stuff yeah. down, I'm talking between innings and you might have it you might might not be the, the gig for you but it's such a great resource oh, man then you'll notice patterns you know i didn't become a better umpire because i just just happened to fall into it i mean it was video review and gil can tell you all the videos that i watch i send them so, you know right. all this stuff about learning how to be better if you're not learning how to be better odds are someone's just passing absolutely and it's uh it, there is there, i mean there's an off season where we don't physically travel uh, and, and umpire games, but we're doing stuff to mentor, teach, train, recruit new umpires to work fall leagues, to do this, that, and the other. Um, and, and, and that starts in, 
in August and September, and they'll run through November. And then, you know, December may be cold time off and things like that, but it's a, it, it's, it, it's always a continuing educational process. We'll go to camps. We'll teach at camps. We'll, we'll go to meetings. We'll have emails and we'll have uh, rules references and stuff. And, and then I'm thinking of just things that I do in my own repertoire, like, like one this year, it's going to be a hot topic. Uh, the Sam Holbrook three foot running lane deal. We've always done that as to signaling to our partner, yes or no, that the guy was, was, was running in the three foot running lane. We've always, we've always signaled just to us. And I'm going, well, anything that's borderline, just come up with the safe signal. Like, He's okay because the alternative is if you don't give the safe signal, then it's time. He's out. Interference, three-foot running lane. So just things are evolving because so much is on TV now and so much is streamed. There's, I mean, you got you got NAI schools that are, that have three cameras. I mean, that's it's it's becoming more relevant. It's their own, you know, intern um, media department has got a camera behind home plate. They have commentating and then. Um, they flash over to a, a play at the plate from the first base camera angle. You know, now I'm saying it's not ESPN quality, not HD or Fox Sports or anything, but you are being viewed at, at, at all levels of baseball. High school, the same way. High school is doing the same thing with iPads and stuff. So it's, it's just different things that are it, – but I'm calling it another form of communicating with the players, with the coaches, and – everyone evolving with the game. So the digital side has evolved, the umpiring, the mechanics, the verbalization, the Ed Hockeyleys of the world uh, that can verbalize and explain something, can articulate their calls with rule book terminology. A coach can't argue that. He's going to go in the rule book and look, and he's going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I see that in the rule. Okay, well, I guess he knows what he's talking about, you know, but it's easier for me to say it than do it, but that's what I had to do to earn my strikes in the minor leagues and then going into college baseball. You know, you have to work. I had to work 10 times as hard coming out of pro baseball to prove myself that I wasn't here thinking I'm better than the game because I'm an ex minor league guy. They don't care. I'm working as hard going, I want you to keep putting direct deposit in my account on Tuesday and then on Thursday night when I fly back into a city on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they are getting 110% of my best effort out on the field, just like I've done it for the last 25-plus years. And when that, when that starts to deteriorate a little bit, then, then I'm, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and say, self, might be time to hang it up because I, don't, I want them to remember me at my peak, and I don't want them to remember me as in, man, he used to be good, but these last few years, he's been awful. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for uh, for giving us a few minutes. And if this is half of as, uh, uh, as informative to our viewers as it was for me, I think everybody should be able to to learn quite a bit from uh, from this podcast. Uh, thanks again for, for joining us. I appreciate you all having me. And uh, anytime you all want to jump on the phone and, talk about stuff I'm, I'm more than happy to do that and again i know there's a ton of people that you all don't even know that remain anonymous and fly under the radar that love your all's material uh, i would definitely I'm, I'm a fan and i get on there and look at stuff and the things that you all are doing and and promoting the sport and promoting what's going on it's it's it's, it's good what you all are doing and i just encourage you all to keep doing what you're doing there's a lot of 
there's a ton of traffic on there that that behind the scenes of people with um, with some MLB tags on there that get on there and look at your all stuff and read your stuff and like what y'all are doing too. So um, that that's uh, you guys. Anytime y'all need me, I'm here for you. And I'll tell you what, if you can get to a camp that Scott Kennedy teaches at, uh, you go because I'll guarantee you one thing: you'll have a good time and uh, you'll have fun. <laughs> you'll learn a little bit about baseball too, maybe even in that order. That's right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) For all of us here at uh, Close Call Sports, we'd like to thank our guest, Scott Kennedy, Gil Imber, for everything he does, and me, I'm just simply Tim McCaffrey. Until next time, always do what's right, not what's easy. Happy umpiring, everyone. Hey, everybody, T-Mac here for UpCourse.com. Whether you're looking for a career in minor league baseball or you just want to move up a level or two, the umpire placement course will place dozens of students in those summer college and professional leagues. Hey, more good news. When you go to umpcourse.com, when you register, tell them Close Call Sports or TMAC sent you, and you're going to get a free gift at the camp. Go to umpcourse.com now.